Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From pitch side to print to the press box above Providence Park. It's Jamie Goldberg from the Oregonian and Richard Farley from the Portland Timbers and Thorns. This is Soccer Made in Portland. On the scene, all the time. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Soccer Made in Portland. Uh, I'm Jamie Goldberg. I'm here with Richard Farley. We're sitting at Providence Park, back uh, back at Providence Park to record. How are you doing, Richard? I'm doing good, but I just forgot that we have to do theme music and everything. So when you start talking, I think it's the old show where Chris is going, hello, hello. But actually, <laughs> we have this whole produced intro yeah. now. So we're we should just jump right in, I guess, but it's going to take some time. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. Uh, I guess. I guess we don't need to introduce. We've introduced each other twice. That is we true. We literally paid somebody to introduce I know. us. Yeah. So um, we'll we'll get the hang of it over time. Um, but I guess let's just jump right into it then. Let's do it. Um, the Timbers did obviously took a week off from MLS play, but they still were playing in the U.S. Open Cup. Uh, they advanced to the quarterfinals uh, with a one-zero win over the LA Galaxy last Friday. I, I believe it's the First time they've advanced to the quarterfinals since 2014. Uh, my prediction, I, I think, was pretty good. I, I predicted a Timbers uh, were going to win two to nothing, so um, gave them an extra goal there. But it was a pretty decisive victory, anyway. So I think I got that part right. Um, your side bet was kind of just <laughs> didn't, didn't really work out. Paredes uh, gets his second goal for the Timbers. He he didn't even get enough minutes really to do that, did he? Like three minutes yeah. at the end or something <laughs> like that. And I think we, we're still going to keep scoring these bets. And we were talking about this before the show started, how me swinging for the fences with these side <laughs> bets is going to be pretty much, I get zero for eight straight weeks, and then I get 120 points. Yeah, so I got to build, I guess, my points up there. And we're looking at ways to maybe see how to play around these predictions. We've got some good ideas from, from uh, some listeners, uh, maybe that we should bring in a, a fan uh, bet every week and see how they do versus us. So we're, we're thinking about it. If you have any other ideas um, about how we should play with the predictions, let us know. Um, but I guess for this week, uh, um, so I, should, I get, should I give the points out or should we switch off? Should we give each other points out? How do you want to do this? I think I did the scoring last week. I do have to admit that I would give you a decent amount of points for this one, but... That's not my decision to make because it's your turn. All right. Um, I'm going to give myself uh, 14 points for, for this. I think it's a pretty pretty mm. close um, resort. And I'm going to mm. give you zero. 
So Okay, well, I mean, I'm disappointed, but I also know what I'm getting into. <laughs> I mean, I'm just swinging for... Who's a baseball player? Mark Reynolds. Do you know who Mark <laughs> Reynolds is? He's a baseball player that I think set the record for strikeouts in a year. He had like over 220 strikeouts in a season. But he also hit like 30... Wait, how do I know something baseball that you don't? <laughs> what is this going on here? Just not paying attention to the people striking out, I guess. I guess. But either way, I'm the person that struck out this week <laughs> on the Timbers pick. All right, so looking at the game, uh, Timbers, you know, they have the week off from MLS play, so they go with close to their top lineup. Valeria, I think, is the, the big absence there. They give him the week off to get some rest. Um, do, you, do you think that was the right move, and how do you think that it sort of played out? I think it was definitely the right move. Certainly, the Timbers had great reason to believe that the 11 that they could put out there was capable of winning the game. I think there's a little proof to that right now. But as Giovanni Savarese said with one of the first responses in his post-match press conference, they gave, it gave them an opportunity to look at a team, to deploy a look that he's wanted to use since preseason. Now, that two-striker formation with a diamond behind, I think in preseason, if my memory is correct, he used it twice, and it was always as a second-half adjustment. I think he used it in the Dallas game, and I think he used it in the Kansas City game. So... This idea of being able to incorporate Adi and Armenteros together, I mean, you and I have talked about it a lot. They just didn't play a formation that allowed yeah. it before. Yeah, I think that you look at this game, it, I think we knew going into it, we said last week that we thought they would play their best lineup. It obviously was going to give them the best chance to win. They knew L.A. was probably going to put out close to their best available lineup. I, I think it's a little disappointing that you don't get to see some of the players that get these opportunities in U.S. Open Cup when, when you are dealing with a compacted schedule. Like you did see the week before, you saw some of these players from the T2 level coming out and sort of standing out. Um, but, but I think that the Timbers had a good opportunity to advance here with sort of the, how the schedule worked out, and it made sense um, for them to go with their top lineup. And as you said, to be able to utilize this game to not only put out their top uh, available players, but kind of look at a new formation to see if it's going to be something they can use moving forward. I, I mean, I thought uh, it, was, it was clearly effective in this game. Um, I, I didn't think L.A. looked that great in, in this game overall. I, I felt like even though it was one nothing, the Timbers were very much in control of the game from the get-go. I, I was even, I think, turning to you in the press box and saying, hey, I, they played them two weeks ago with almost the same lineup. What's different <laughs> right now? Um, but I, I do think it was interesting to see how the two-front formation could be effective in a game like this. Um, whether it's going to be as effective in MLS play is something I guess we're going to have to see over time. But we got a lot of questions for, from listeners um, Nick and others asking whether they whether we thought um, a two forward setup could be a successful formation in MLS play and what the lineup would look like. What who would have to come off the field for that to happen? That's the bigger question. But let's deal with that second because I think it's probably it's a shorter discussion, but it really is a more meaningful discussion. So the formation that we saw on Friday, MLS has kind of a I don't want to say a deep history with that, but there's a very distinct example in Major League Soccer history of a team that was very successful with that, and that is the classic Real Salt Lake teams of the last decade. And talking to the person that formed that team, uh, then, then general manager Garth Lagerwey, one of the things that he said was that they couldn't stay with that formation forever. They eventually, in his last days there, had to try to switch to a 4-3-3 because it was so hard to find and then cultivate the players that were playing 
to mention two timbers at the Will Johnson and Ned Grabavoy level of that formation. Not the deepest midfielders, but the ones that had to cover the wide spaces as well as be the next into attack to both connect and to play defense. And then also be responsible for the shifting of that diamond and make sure that it maintains its shape as teams move the ball around them. Now you look at the Timbers, they got a bunch of players that fit that role really well. I mean, not a ton, but Flores, Chara, Paredes are all players that you can imagine playing that role. And of course, Chara, you would imagine playing the deepest position. But we even saw on Friday when he has to move up and you bring somebody like Lawrence Olam is, it provides that level of protection to insert somebody in there. You could even see somebody like a Bill Tuiloma maybe play in that role. So as far as its viability going forward, based on kind of that historic example, I think the Timbers have really good personnel to be able to deploy this in league and have the transition be more seamless than most teams' transitions would be. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely another weapon that the Timbers proved that they can have if they maybe want to play a little bit more direct, if they're dealing with maybe injuries or, or personnel um, questions, or or if they just think it's a look that the other team's not going to expect. And that's a very good thing, I, I think, to not be predictable. The Timbers were a predictable team in the last few years in terms of formation and system. It didn't mean that they were going to lose the game, but it, other teams could predict that they were going to basically what lineup they were going to have and they were going to have um the the four two three one formation and that's what they were going to go with so this does give Savaresi another option to try to get um maybe switch things up in moments when he wants to be um less predictable and also maybe even within games as they make substitutions and the game sort of changes i think getting to the second point i do wonder what how they would sort of roll this out with um, Valeri coming back in. Because, like you said, they, they have players like Flores and Paredes who sort of fit this sort of formation. But you have to think that Flores would likely, or or, or Andy Polo coming back, would Ooh, likely be the player. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that. I'm sorry yeah. I forgot about him. Yeah, I mean, you would think that one of those two has to be the one coming off because you're not going to take Blanco and Valeri off the field, at least in a starting role, I wouldn't think. And I think you, Blanco and Larry, both within that diamond formation, both sort of most naturally fit the same area. So you'd have to make some adjustments based on that. So I don't, I think it comes, I think the Timbers have the personnel to do it, but when they have to want to get their best players on the field, I don't think it necessarily comes as naturally as what they've been going with or potentially the 4 2 3 1. So hearkening back to preseason again, the two times that I remember Giovanni Savarese using this formation, the Timbers were coming off very bad first halves, and they were down. And when they pulled Sebastian Blanco back into one of those midfield shuttling roles, it made sense from the pure perspective of having more, better attacking players on the field. Now, that's a totally different mindset than what you would have starting a game. I think there are a couple of things that come to mind with that. One, Diego Valeri from his time at Lanús and just his general style doesn't necessarily need to be the person at the top of the diamond. You can definitely see him playing one of the forward positions alongside either Armenteros and Adi. And in that way, kind of being able to rotate those four, let's just call those four primary attackers. Being able to rotate those four primary attackers, maybe give them a rest every now and then in order to play this look, could work. You could even see somebody like an Andy Polo being one of those three at the top of the formation and seeing that work. However, that's obviously not the best use of the Timbers' talent. So it naturally lends us to think that 
the diamond midfield, the 4-3-1-2 formation, is something that they would use if they need to change things up or if one of those four primary attackers needed a day off. But if they had all of those people healthy, they would probably go with something else. I'm sorry to go on because I just realized that I kind of screwed up. It's not like they've been able to play all four of those guys together anyway, right? So we're sitting here kind of going, oh, there has to be a compromise. Yes, there has to be a compromise, but not a compromise compared to what they're doing now because the 4-3-2-1, they can only play three of those four players at a time. Yeah, but I, I think ultimately when you can only play three of four, it's Valeri, Blanco, and whichever forward you want to pick. If you want to get your best attacking group out there, I, I don't think at this point you can say that if they're all healthy and available, your best attacking group doesn't include Blanco or Valeri. 100%. I mean, maybe that'll come in time. We'll see that. But at this point... We not only don't have any reason to believe that, but you look at the chance creation numbers from the other midfielders in the team, and I think it would be a risk at this point in the season in particular to go, we need to give one of these other players a chance to create. Yeah. I, I think um, we're bringing another listener question. Yanks in Portland asked, do, do the Timbers prioritize U.S. Open Cup now over MLS play now that they've advanced to the quarterfinals? Obviously, with the next game coming up, it's going to be a game where they're going to be dealing with more of a compacted schedule. Uh, so looking ahead, I, I mean, how do you see the Timbers sort of approaching this? I don't know for sure, but the easy answer to me is no. So you actually, I don't know if you brought it up uh, this weekend or you, we just were mentioning this before. Giovanni Savaresi was available after the Galaxy game on Friday. But you had noted, much like our ex-colleague Chris Reifer had noted on Twitter, that the likely outcome for this next round, if LAFC takes care of business this week, is that LAFC and Portland will have two games in a four-day span in LA where one will be an MLS game followed by an Open Cup game. I'm... I'm betting that the prioritization there will be MLS, partly because we're still only at the quarter, quote unquote, only at the quarterfinal stage. But partly it's going to be a weekend game that fits into the team's normal routine. So you play your regulars on their normal routine on the weekend, and then you go with the best that's left on the weekday. But I mean, I'm interested to hear what you think the Timbers should do. I, I think they should prioritize MLS play. I, this club has made it very clear that MLS play and CONCACAF Champions League is more important to them than U.S. Open Cup. That's what they've said the priority is. Obviously, uh, the further you get in U.S. Open Cup, the more important it becomes. But for me, that isn't necessarily the quarterfinal stage. Maybe as you get to the semifinals, and, and certainly as you get to the finals, then you maybe say, we're going to actually prioritize this over MLS. But I think at this point, you're, you're kind of going to deal with how you can play the three games in whatever amount of days it is, how you can deal with that schedule. And that might mean that a few players that that are capable of playing three games in a compacted amount of time play all three games, that you don't see a totally T2 lineup out there. But I do think you're going to see the best lineup uh, for the LAFC MLS game on the weekend, a rotated lineup for the midweek game, and and trying to get closer to the best for for the game that comes after. And I have to say, I don't know for sure that the Open Cup game is going to be in Los Angeles. I probably should know that, but I haven't looked that up. But to my knowledge, it's not set yet. Yeah, Um, I'm not sure that's But either way, it does look like it'll be two games in four days. One's definitely going to be against LA. One is going to be against LA or Sacramento. So no matter what, the issues of rotation are going to come up the issues that we're talking about here. And quite frankly, the Timbers have too deep of a team not to play their depth. 
Yeah, and I, I think the the other side of that is they probably are going to want to show LAFC a different look. Um, even, even if it was potentially two MLS games, I think the Timbers might want to make certain tweaks and changes because they don't want to show the exact same team in the exact same system. Uh, once LAFC has had time to look at that weekend game and try to adjust, I, I would think they'd want to potentially make changes even if it was two MLS games. And, and given that it's a U.S. Open Cup game, I certainly expect them to. Absolutely. Well, let's go ahead and start fast-forwarding to this weekend's action. And this is a game that I feel like has been much anticipated ever since the Timbers started going on what is now this 10-game unbeaten run, 8-game unbeaten run in Major League Soccer play. This game and the Sporting KC game, this game being the trip to Atlanta, I guess I should probably say (laughs) that at some point. These are the games that loomed on the calendar that we kind of went, look, the Timbers are doing fine, they're building, but once they get to this point, these are where the tests are. So... Whether you think they passed the Sporting Kansas City test or not, they clearly survived it. Now they're going to a place where survival is going to be a little bit more perilous. Yeah, uh, I, I think and we can start here, but I, I think if their unbeaten streak, I, I think it's this might be where their unbeaten streak comes to an end. And it'll be very impressive if it doesn't. I, I mean, they're going to an Atlanta team that leads the league in goals um, right now with 33 goals. They have the current golden boot leader, uh, Josef Martinez, and they are playing, and Atlanta's playing at home in a, in a place where they draw more fans than anywhere else in MLS. So this is a very, very tough game for the Timbers. It's Sunday at 1.30 p.m., which we haven't yet mentioned, but I, I, I think this is going to be a, a real challenge, and I, it's hard for me to see, even with the Timbers playing well, them being able to necessarily pick up a result here. I, I, this is a game for me that it, it, I think it will be a surprise if the Timbers, the Timbers have to prove um, that they can be able to go on the road and get a result in a place like Atlanta. But if they do, then, then I, I think we have to kind of, we've said this before, you know, how much credit this team deserves. Are they legit? Are they going to be a contender? And there's games that you sort of have on the schedule where you say, well, if they pass this test, then you have to talk, start talking about them a little bit more. And this is certainly one of those games. I completely agree with you. I think it's the type of game where if they lose it, it's not a setback. If they win it, it's a vault forward. I think also Atlanta's not invulnerable at home. They've lost to Sporting Kansas City at home this year. They've lost to the Red Bulls at home this year. Now, granted, both of those games carried weird circumstances within them that allowed the visiting teams to take full points from Atlanta. But it's not impossible to go in there and get a result. Atlanta is a very attack-oriented team, but they're not a perfect team. They do have weaknesses at the back. Those weaknesses were exposed a little bit earlier this season, and to the extent that Portland is able to expose them again on Sunday, that's probably going to dictate whether Portland has a chance at all at three points. But I would tend to think that some of the approaches that we saw in the middle of this 10-game unbeaten run we're going to see again. I'm not sure... and. Maybe Giovanni Savarese says see something on tape that changes this, but I'm not sure that Giovanni Savarese is going to look at this Atlanta team and say to himself, we can travel across the country, play in that environment, and dictate the game. It seems like this is a game that's demanding a little bit more of that NYCFC approach. Yeah, I also think, um, and I want to point out that um, with Martinez, I believe he's dealing with a broken nose right now. And, and so... It, he's been listed as day-to-day. Um, I, I think I'm going to lean on the side and how we've been talking as if he's going to play, but that obviously would make a huge, um, I, I think, difference in this game. He has 14 goals in 16 games. Yeah, it would make a huge difference, but the other players that yeah. are there, <laughs> Miguel Amaron, 
at when he's at his best, he's right up there at the top level with the David Villa and Sebastian Giovinco level of players in this league. Uh, Ezekiel Barco, just that hugely expensive Argentine player that they brought in. Hector Villalba, uh, obviously Savarese mentioned him today. Even if you don't want to talk about Darlington now, because Darlington isn't really an attacking force on this team, much like he wasn't much of an attacking force here, he's a connecting force. But the number of people he's connecting with on this team is intimidating. Yeah, and we are going to talk more about Nagby because it's it's Darlington Nagby, and he did play here for seven years. Instead of getting into too much about it, like you've said, I mean, he's been doing what I think Timbers fans, you know, saw here for for seven years. I, I mean, he's that connecting force in the midfield. He's playing as the number eight role. He obviously played on the wing a bunch here, but also played in that role as well. Timbers fans have seen this. He's doing what Darlington Nagby does with the ball at his feet, and he's not scoring goals or, or adding assists. But like you said, Atlanta doesn't really need him to. But I, I think what's interesting at this point in the season and now that the Timbers are going to face Nagby for the first time, the question I want to get to is, what do we think of that trade? Um, how do you evaluate that trade at this point in the season? I want to say the trade was a spectacular deal for the Timbers, but to be quite frank, they wouldn't have traded Darlington Nagby unless somebody overpaid for him. So I don't think that is some kind of you know great indictment on Darlington. And I don't think that is something that says, oh, Gavin Wilkinson, you're a genius. It was just the type of thing where the only way the relationship between Darlington and Portland was really going to end, from my point of view, is if somebody made Portland an offer that they really couldn't refuse. And with all the players that Gavin Wilkinson was able to, Gavin Wilkinson and Ned Grabavoy were able to bring in this offseason, we've seen them, especially with Julio Cascante finally getting time on the field. It's really difficult to argue that the Timbers didn't make out great in that deal. Cascante, starter. Paredes, starter. Polo, starter. Armenteros, starter caliber. And the main reason he's not starting is the formation. I mean, I wouldn't call Cascante a starter by any means yet. I mean, Liam Ridgewell has been out. And... That's a very good point. And we heard today that Liam is in contention to come back this weekend. So maybe in the same way with Andy Polo, too. He started most of the games he's been healthy, but he's also the person that goes to the bench when Giovanni Savarese says Andres Flores is going to start this game. So you have two or three players who are starting caliber players. One person, Paredes, who has asserted himself as a starter. And all of those players, I believe, are younger than Darlington. Even Armenteros, I believe, is either the same age, 27, or a little bit younger on months than Darlington. But it's at least in the same ballpark. And the other three players are years younger than Darlington. And there still might be more benefits to come from that trade. I don't know how much allocation money is left from that deal. Uh, I don't know if there's any left from that deal because of the way that Major League Soccer does things. But even if there were no more returns coming in, that is a remarkable pull for somebody who it appeared the relationship between him and the club had come to a natural point of departure. Yeah, I, I think that the Timbers have said um, that they're you know they were holding on to some allocation money to make um, some moves in the summer transfer window. Whether that allocation money and even with the the players you mentioned that they brought in, um, you know whether that allocation money is a combination of the Nagby trade and um, the targeted allocation money that's coming into MLS, the influx of TAM in this offseason, it's probably a combination. But clearly that trade enabled them to make as many moves as they did. And like you said, I think the big thing for me is 
obviously you get a starter like Paredes, and, and that could be the long-term solution um, when Diego Char retires and, and moves on. He's looking like a guy that's going to continue to grow with this team. Is only 20. That's looking like a really smart signing. Polo, I, I think, is developing over time. We still maybe want to see more from him, but he, he certainly has been a starter, uh, a capable starter for the Timbers because Solante has been a capable backup um, and to even push for more minutes. And, and Armenteros is pushing to, to be in a starting role and has come up with some big goals. So, yes, all those moves, I think you look at them and, and you have to say that just the amount the Timbers got and how much they were able to kind of raise the depth and the level of depth this year. Um, and they've talked about depth in the past and the importance of it, but we haven't really seen that play out how they'd want it to. This year, the team clearly has more depth, and they wouldn't have that without the Nagby trade. But on the same side, I think this was a good trade for Atlanta too. Yeah, maybe they overpaid, but I, I think Nagby's what they needed given that they already had all these players that needed someone to connect to them. They didn't need him to score goals and add assists. They needed him to do exactly what Nagby can do in the midfield, and I think he has been successful for Atlanta, and Atlanta doesn't seem to have any problem overpaying anyways. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. I wish I was more well-versed on Atlanta to be able to say that. I've certainly watched a lot of their games, but I don't think I've watched more than half of their games this year. And to be quite honest with you, in a lot of those games, Nagby wasn't much of a factor. I think most of that is because the other players on the team are just such big factors that Darlington isn't the only player that fades yeah. into the shadows there. I do think their attack would be just as good if Darlington wasn't there because of players like Amaron. But I do think having Darlington there gives them the ability to win the style of games change, particularly towards the end of the season, to control games in a way that they don't have to engage in shootouts in order to advance. And I think that is one of the looming questions is how this will pay off in games 28 through 34 with them. Also, as you noted, he's playing in central midfield this year. The reason Portland eventually went away from playing him in central midfield is because they couldn't play a midfield three with him and Diego Valeri and just rely on Diego Chara to be superhuman. Does Atlanta eventually get exposed having somebody that is, quite frankly, a minus defensive yeah. player? And we'll yeah. see. We'll have to wait and see. I think the other thing I wanted to hit on for this game before, before we move on is we talked a lot about Darlington. We talked about how good Atlanta is, but I mean, given the Timbers defense and, and you know, all the changes they've had, maybe Ridgewell coming back in, are the Timbers capable of going on the road and, and stopping a, such a potent attack that Atlanta has? I don't know how many teams in the league really are. Yeah. <laughs> so I feel like part of me says no, because you should just say no about any team that would go in there. But I do feel like stylistically and in terms of the team's mentality, we saw that this team kind of dismantled itself and built itself up in this pyramid formation, this Christmas tree formation that we've seen. And they built themselves into a team that can hold out. I think that puts them in a good situation to survive Atlanta. I need to see that it puts them in a situation to beat Atlanta. If you told me this was going to be a nil-nil or 0-0, zero -zero, I wouldn't be surprised. If you told me Portland wins it 2 nothing or 3 nothing like they did against New York, like eventually countering New York to death, I would be kind of surprised. Yeah. I but shocked, actually. <laughs> yeah, I, I am going to be surprised if the Timbers get a clean sheet here, but we've seen with Liam Ridgewell when he's played to his best this year how he can sort of be that leader on the back line and kind of the streak that the Timbers had with him on the field in terms of not conceding goals. So I am interested to see Ridgewell has been a better player at home than he has been necessarily going on the road. We saw that 
with New York, especially long trips. So that maybe is a little bit of concern to me. But I do wonder with him coming back in if that's going to be kind of the, the X factor they need to maybe get the defensive performance they want. If he comes back in. If he comes back in. I'm making an assumption but because he's fit, but maybe he won't. I, I mean, Savarese did not say – um, and we can get to that right now since we've start, talked around it. But looking at the injury report this week, Savarese said that Liam Ridgewell uh, was fit and they were still evaluating what role he could play this weekend. He said the same thing about Julio Cascante. Um, and so those are two defenders. You, I think you expect that one of them is going to be available, or at least in the 18, most likely. Oh, definitely. Um, one of them has to be in yeah, the 18, I, probably. I mean, right? unless they, <laughs> they're going to try to move Zarek or something. Or, I mean, well, and they have some options. Yeah, maybe Madhu you know? or yeah. maybe Lawrence Aluma. I mean, um, he's obviously played central defense in a first-team game in the last 10 days. So Yeah, but I mean, if they're both fit, you, you would assume that at least one of them is going to be in the 18. I yeah. obviously am on the believe that Ridge will come back in, but there's reasons to think that maybe a road game's not the, the place to bring him back as well. Yeah, maybe not. It just seems really early in the week right now. It's only Tuesday when yeah. we're recording, so <laughs> who knows what will happen. I mean, you know, we knew that earlier this year, Liam was scheduled to come back in against Orlando. I think uh, Giovanni Savarese has said that was the, the not necessarily the plan, but they were keeping their minds open to that at one point, and then Liam had a calf injury. So we're still early enough in the week where something else might happen. Or, you know, it, it's not just Liam. When Bill Tuiloma looked like he was asserting himself in the starting lineup, he picked up a knee injury in practice. So I guess we should wait and see. But it does seem like Giovanni Savarese will have four center backs and three of them are likely to be in the 18. Yeah. Um, I, I do want to touch on one last injury update because it was really exciting. Um, Roy Miller, we, we asked about today because he's been out um, sort of on the training field a bunch and obviously he's been sort of in the back of our minds because he had the Achilles injury last year. We sort of expected that he might be out for the entire season. But Savaresi said today that he could make uh, his, or he could see his first minutes, whether that's with T2 or, or the first team. We'll see. But uh, by July 1st. Yeah. This is really exciting for me because as everybody who listens to this podcast knows, I actually work for the team. But when you're seeing people like Roy Miller around doing long-term rehab, there's really nothing I know about their progress because it is such a long-term thing that they have to get somebody to a certain level before they can even think about the competitive aspect of them. And to see Roy Miller, who has been with the team since spring training, he went down to Arizona with them, he's been with the team all along, get to the point where he's doing regular training with the team it's not only great because you think of somebody coming back from an injury, which at his point of his career could have been career-ending, but Roy Miller is just an awesome guy to have around. And I learned this when we were down in Arizona, when every single person from the New York Red Bulls who were down there climbed up half a stand to shake Roy's hand, to hug him. I mean, he hasn't been in New York for two or three years now, but they all went out of their way to make sure they caught up with Roy Miller. That's a good example of how integral culturally somebody like that makes himself in this kind of environment and for a team to see him then get rewarded with playing time eventually that's going to be a pick-me-up to the team yeah and I I think just watching it last year I I mean we that wasn't something we saw with like Nats we actually saw Nats injury occur his occurred in practice but seeing what an Achilles injury can do to a career with with Nat Fortress as, as someone that's in their 30s you heard that about Roy Miller, and I was just, you know, that's the end. That's the end of his career right there. And the fact that he's 
not only coming back, but, but coming back as quickly as he is, um, you, you hate to see people end their career on an injury. So I, I think that's really exciting. Yeah, I'm glad you asked about Rory in the press conference today. Let's go to one last listener question before we change gears here. Uh, over, under, on the number of times Diego Chara fouls Darlington Nagby on Sunday? <laughs> that's a good question. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean... It's it's. I definitely think the Timbers are going to be fouling fouling Nagby. It'll be interesting to see that with all all the times that he was fouled here and how I, I mean I, I when he was on the Timber side it was just this annoying thing. But it's how it's kind of how you stop Nagby. And even Zarek said today that he was going to try to get in and get his get a few kicks in um, to his friend. Um, I don't know something like five. 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 Wow. <laughs> uh, well, it's over under. I mean, yeah. that's where I'm putting setting the line. So why why don't you guys get at us on Twitter? Jamie is going to go over my over under. I would set the over under at three point five. <laughs> as far as well, oh, but as far as three point yeah. five total, as so far as Chara specifically, I would set it at one point five. You think only three point five total? I think that Nagby. Yeah. I think that Nagby will be fouled like I. I think Nagby will be fouled seven times, and that. Um, I, I set the bar at five, but that was kind of like the over-under. I think Chara's going to foul him just under five times. I think Chara will foul him four times, and then two, three other guys will get in there. I'm, I'm going big. <laughs> you are definitely going big. You should have saved this for the hot take segment. I know. I just don't see Darlington as the type of person that holds the ball enough in this Atlanta attack to be fouled that, that be often. True. But if the Timbers end up playing very deep in their four-three-two-one formation, he will have the ball more. I also think that he might just hold the ball more because it's this type of game is the game I think he might get up for. And so the Timbers might have more opportunities to film. But we'll see. I, I, I wanted to go a little hot there yeah. um, just was, for fun. I was about to make a Trinidad <laughs> reference here, but I think we should move on. Let's move on to, since we're getting pretty hot takey, the Chris Reifer Memorial Hot Take Interlude. we got to get some production value here. The same production value we applied to the I opening. Know. We need some kind of Only. horns or something like that, trumpets. The Chris Only Reifer if we should Memorial play them ourselves. <laughs> All right, Jamie, I'm going to go first. I don't think this is such a hot take, but it feels appropriate on a week after when returning from U.S. national team duty, both Mitch Purse and Tobin Heath came back with ankle injuries. I'll dress it up into a hot take. Jill L should stop calling in Portland Thorns at all. No Portland Thorn whatsoever should be with the U.S. Women's National Team forever. And the reason I say this is just because of a career longevity thing. Pretty much Lindsey Horan is the only person that has survived the U.S. Women's National Team gauntlet. And even at the beginning of last season, she had to sit out a few practices after coming back from the She Believes tournament because her back was a little bit messed up. Tobin Heath, you wrecked her ankle. Again, Tobin Heath's ankle. Don't mess with it. Mitch Purse, you got her back in camp for the first time in a year, and you wrecked her ankle. What are you doing? Even A.D. French came back from winter camp with a, a quad problem, and Megan Klingenberg said she got sick during national team camp in January. No Thorne should ever, ever pick up the phone, not only when U.S. soccer calls, but if they see a Chicago caller ID on their phone, just drop the phone into the toilet and flush right at that point. That's... That's not only a hot take. I want that to be scripture. I want that to be a rule. No more thorns with the U.S. Well, I disagree with that because I want to see the thorns compete on the world stage and at the World Cup and at the Olympics. I think it was really cool, you know, having players from Portland at the 2015 Olympics and 2016 or 
2015 World Cup and 2016 Olympics. Um, but it does raise the question for me, it, it, maybe Jill Ellis needs to change what she's doing in her trainings. There's way too many players, I feel like, coming. And maybe maybe we're skewed with the Portland perspective because it's been really, really bad here. But it feels like even outside of Portland, there's too many players coming away from these camps injured. And, and if that's if that's happening on a consistent basis, I, I think U.S. soccer needs to be looking at what are we doing wrong? Absolutely. I, you know, I before I started working for this club, I did a big story on this last year for 442. There was a camp where six players came out of it, including Rose Lavelle, Mallory Pugh, Abby Smith, a lot of prominent young players, and they were hampered for a couple months afterwards. Even the She Believes Cup this year, the Chicago Red Stars in particular really hit hard because Julie Ertz and Casey Short came back injured. So I'm saying that the Thorns shouldn't go report for U.S. national team. Let's heat it up. (laughs) No NWSL players. No. They obviously should. This is a problem that needs to be looked into. Anytime you have a disproportionate amount of injuries, staff should look at it. But this time around, those injuries hit the thorns hard. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And we'll see how that plays out in the next few weeks. My hot take, I feel like I've talked to you a little bit about this. I've talked to some people about it. But I think the World Cup is way better than Champions League, way better than any soccer out there. I don't look at it as worst quality play, even though maybe it is. Um, But it is so much fun to watch. And there's no better soccer for me, uh, in my opinion, to watch than a World Cup game. And maybe you don't have the best players all being bought by a certain team and and them becoming a powerhouse. But when you, you get this intensity and this energy that I just don't think you get in any other setting. I mean, you have countries that can't choose which players are born there. I mean, these are players that have to have developed in that country. You have national pride. You have the countries competing against each other. You have these underdogs like Iceland um, going and getting a result against Argentina. There's no better soccer for me to watch than this. This is the, this is the height. Um, and even watching Champions League a few weeks ago, uh, this, this is a whole new level for me. That is the hottest take you've ever had while I'm on this podcast. I, I've been thinking about this because I've known for a couple of days this was going to be your take. And I think it's the, the soccer elitist's view that says, well, there's no actual way you can measure World Cup and say that it's better than Champions League. Like Every criteria you can come up with says that Champions League is better than World Cup. And on one hand, I actually do ascribe to that. But every quality that you mention that doesn't apply to Champions League that people love the World Cup for can't be ignored. So I kind of want to give you two grades on this hot take. Like, as somebody that covers soccer for a living, you really shouldn't have just said what you just did. <laughs> but as an actual human being, it makes a lot of sense. So you get, up, you get a fire and ice rating for this hot take. And maybe that's a good way for us to transition into the Thorns. Thorns, this last week, had a game in Chicago. 1-1 result. Chicago went up early when... Yuki Nagasoto put in a failed penalty kick that the rebound went back to her. Lindsay Horan gets her customary goal. The goal that the second it went in, I said, I talked myself out of making the Horan prediction. (laughs) But the predictions for this one, Jamie, you predicted a draw. Thorns 2, Chicago 2. Probably not the style of game that you imagined, but it was still a very almost identical result. A very almost identical result. And then I, as my side bet, said Anna Sinogorchevich would score a goal. She did not score a goal. So hand up the points, Jamie. Yeah, so you again get zero. Um, so you're really going to have to get like a 
I don't know, a Lauren Solom like hat trick or something to like catch catch up with me um, in, in this silly uh, points giving. I, I think, like you said, I don't think I got the game as well in this one. It didn't feel like a 2-2 game, whereas I, I do think the LA game felt pretty decisive, even though the Timbers didn't end up getting that second goal. Um, I'll give myself seven points for this, for this one. I think that's fair. You've been really fair with all the points since I started the show. Even the zeros that I've accumulated today. I know what I'm doing. I need to rethink my strategy on this one. Maybe I just need to go, you know, for the, when you're kind of doing the, the ski ball, every once in a while you have to go for 20 or 30. I'm going for the hundreds every time. I'm not even trying to go for the 50s. So maybe I need to reevaluate my strategy. This game, though, was less noteworthy for the action on the field, which Coming off of an international break, I thought this was an incredibly uninspiring game. You had a bunch of players that looked like they had just gotten off international duty, gotten off planes two days before. The real context of this game started to take place an hour before the match when Chicago's lineup was announced. And the rumors that had been floating around the Red Stars for a couple days were confirmed. Chicago left three of the players who had been starting recently for them out of the team. U.S. international Sofia Huerta, Consistent center back option Samantha Johnson, and then right back filling for most of this year and former Thorn Taylor Camo. They were omitted from the 18 altogether, and Chicago announced that they were going to be part of a trade that would come. That trade finally came on Monday, a trade that sent Huerta and Camo to Houston. Johnson, along with the rights to Kristen Press, who had been with Houston, those went to Utah. Utah sent a package of draft picks that included five draft picks from them and one from the Houston Dash. Four of those draft picks are first-round picks. One of them is guaranteed to be a number one pick, along with Brooke Elby, a second-year fullback from North Carolina, to Chicago. It is a deal that, in my opinion, improves every single team that is around the thorns in the standings. And did you even mention Morgan Bryan, who wasn't directly part of the trade, but I think they were freeing up the roster space to be able to sign her. It's so ridiculous because the article that's coming out Chicago. tomorrow on Timverse.com, I explicitly say you cannot evaluate this trade without talking about Morgan Bryan. <laughs> and I just tried to do it. But yes, Morgan Bryan is coming back into the league. She had been in France playing with Leon. Uh, not a very successful time there. Because she was in France, she is an unallocated player, which means they have to make room for her both within the roster limits and the salary cap of the team, which is part of the reason... Well, I talked to Coach Dames from Chicago yesterday. He didn't say this was part of the reason that they made this deal, but it's certainly part of the benefits that they are shipping out enough players to bring Morgan Bryant back in. So, with that being said, the Thorns' path to the playoffs looks very precarious now. Yeah, and that's the question we got from Michael that makes sense to talk about in here. But yeah, I, I mean, whether the Thorns are in real danger of missing the playoffs. I, I mean, you just have three teams that got better, and you look how close the standings are right now. Obviously, North Carolina is in their own sort of, sort of world. Like we said, we expect them to win the NWSL Shield. They're, it would be absolutely shocking. I mean, I don't even know when they're going to be able to clinch that. It's... Tomorrow. <laughs> it's going to happen tomorrow. There's not even a game tomorrow. They're just going to give it to them. They should. They they, they might as well just hand out the I trophy. I think the coaches around the league are willing to do that. <laughs> yeah, we don't have to worry about this anymore? Fine. Let them have it. They're going to have it anyway. Yeah. But uh, behind that, I, I mean, you look at the, the points in the league. I, I mean, you have Seattle and Orlando at 19, Utah at 17, Portland at 16, Chicago at 16, and, and 14 for Houston. So in that group, I mean, that can change within a few weeks. I mean, those teams are all really vying to try to stay in the playoff picture right now. And three of those teams just got a lot better. 
Um, the Thorns haven't hit. I don't think hit their peak, gotten, hit their potential this year. They obviously haven't been healthy throughout the year, but they are at the halfway point of the season. And I think something has to start changing pretty quickly now that they have three teams getting better, potentially going to have opportunities to pick up even more points. Um, the competition's taking to a new level. The Thorns, I don't know how much time they have to sit around and hope things come together at the end of the year. They, you know, pick up a point in Chicago, but they just throughout the year, even when they're winning, even when they're picking up draws in okay places, they, they just haven't looked like that, that dominant team they looked at the end of last year. Which is really talking about their form, which I think a good measure from that is always the goal difference column. And amongst the top six teams in the league, the Thorns are the only team with a negative goal difference. That's telling to me that I mean, it's always telling when you're giving up more goals than you're scoring over a long period of time. And the Thorns obviously can play better. But as I have done over the last couple of days, when you sit down and chart out what Chicago's probable starting 11 is going to be and Utah's probable starting 11, it is not an insane evaluation to say that those two teams have better starting 11s at this point than the Thorns. But where the Thorns have always had an advantage on other teams is by having players like Christine Sinclair and Lindsey Horan and Tobin Heath and Amandine Henri and Emily Sonnet and... Uh, A.D. French and Emily Menges, that core, along with the experience and skill of somebody like a Megan Klingenberg and the experience of Catherine Reynolds, like there's something unique about that core. And they have stepped up as they did last year and proven that, you know, last year against a North Carolina team that was arguably more talented than them, they took the game to them and they won it in Orlando. And I think that's obviously what it's going to have to come down to again here. Are the Thorns as talented as Chicago now? I don't think they are. That doesn't mean they're not better. Yeah, I mean, and you mentioned Nominee Unreal in there. Obviously, she's not part of the core this year. And I, I think that has become more of a question of how much, how big of a loss that has been for the Thorns. I mean, as we continue on, um, they haven't, I mean, they clearly haven't replaced her. Um, even with the players they brought in, there hasn't been like someone that you say, okay, they're bringing what Amandine Henri did. And that's, I mean, obviously very tough to do. You don't just replace Amandine Henri. But are they going to get to the level um, that they got to last year, even with all these veterans, when, when they don't have a player like Henri in there? I think we really have to talk about this now because now that Andresinha has been back for a prolonged period of time, it's time to evaluate whether the experiment of trying to move her into a deeper role than she played with the dash is going to work. She got just taken off the ball a number of times this weekend. And if she can't hold down that role more, that pretty much pins Lindsay Horan deeper in the formation, or it requires bringing somebody like a Celeste Blu-ray, somebody like an Angela Salem into the 11, or maybe changing the formation entirely. These are the type of questions that Mark Parsons is going to have to answer throughout the next month or so. And who knows, does he even have a month to answer those questions before an improved Utah, an improved Chicago, and an improved Houston start to accumulate points? You know, there's only 12 games to go for the Thorns. I'm just, I'm not sure where this time is coming. I really think it's going to come down to how far can Sinclair and Horan in particular carry this team? Yeah, I, I think there are too many questions. The, the Thorns shouldn't have this many questions uh, at this point in the season. And it's getting to the point where it's worrisome. And it, they are absolutely, after this trade, in danger of missing playoffs. Going, going to the actual game, uh, let's talk a little bit about that. Um, I felt like it was a little bit of a tale of two halves, but Chicago certainly and Sam Kerr uh, had a lot of the ball in the first half. Um, 
Thorns, I, I think, got more chances in the second half, made adjustments. It, when you look at it, I mean, what was going on, especially in that first half that you felt was causing so much trouble for the Thorns, and how were they maybe able to adjust at halftime? I think Sam Kerr got a lot of the ball because the player playing behind her, Yuki Nagasato, got a lot of the ball. And they were not cutting off the service. That's on Lindsey Horan. That's on Andrew Senior. It's on the whole team. I don't want to signal, signal out, single out them. But when you draw the formations... You have to say that these two players, these two deep-lying midfielders for the Thorns, have to be able to manage what Yuki Nagasato was doing. And it just seemed like Nagasato was able to provide so many good passes for Kerr. Now, I think Emily Menges in particular, but also Catherine Reynolds, they did a pretty good job of making sure that when Sam Kerr got to the ball and turned on it, she didn't have the best of angles. She had to go with her left foot instead of cutting back onto her right. She was having to shoot from 17 yards instead of taking a touch and making a, making a 12-yard shot. But eventually, you give Sam Kerr enough chances, and she puts you in a situation where Kelly Hubley has to take a chance on that tackle. She comes up short, penalty, goal for, eventually goal for Chicago. I just think that they had to do better cutting off the access to, to her. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and I, I think that one thing I, I am interested to see is as the Thorns, and we'll get into this a little bit, but as the Thorns get healthier on defense and get more consistency back there, if that's the kind of thing that – if they were at that point, if that would change, is that – I mean, for me, as they're – asking all these questions the one thing that is promising for me right now is that maybe they're going to start getting more consistency on defense if the players coming back in can stay healthy and the players currently on the field can stay healthy um within a week or two they might have their full defense back and and that might change you know these types of games against when they're going up against players like sam kerr maybe there's not anyone else like sam kerr but there are certainly a lot of other good attacking players in this league there absolutely are there are definitely players that are willing to run as much as sam kerr but we kind of called it last week on the show we thought the return or non-return of emily sonnet was going to be really big in this one I don't know how big it actually was just because Nagasato had so much room to play those passes to Kerr, but I definitely think Emily Sana's athleticism matched up against an athlete like Sam Kerr wouldn't have hurt at all. Going forward, Emily Sana is likely to return very soon. You would say she's likely to be back for a prolonged period of time, and then her return, obviously, with the return of Adriana France is going to solidify that defense. How much it solidifies the defense? I mean... Again, we go back to, or how much that solidifying matters, you go back to all these other teams around the Thorns are improving. You've got to improve. Now, you not only have to catch up to their improvement, then you have to keep improving to catch up to where you should have been originally. So just that hourglass. I've got an hourglass in my head that is just trickling down, and this season is halfway over at this point. Yeah. Before we move on to injury updates, you kind of sort of alluded to that. I, it was, I think, the law, there was a lot of questions going around Twitter. I was sort of surprised by this, but whether that was a deserved penalty kick um, for Chicago, Hubley takes really? down. I, I was surprised too, so I just wanted to bring it up here. But the Hubley takes down Sam Kerr. I, I think on replay, you don't see um, slides into Sam Kerr, doesn't get ball in the box. You don't see any contact. Uh, so. I think there was some question on Twitter. I mean, there's no contact. Was that just a dive from Sam Kerr? Um, (laughs) So I feel like we should just address this and why I can tell from your face we both agree why that's a PK every time. I I thought Kate Markgraf did a good job of explaining it on the broadcast. Hubley impeded Sam Kerr's progress on a scoring chance in the penalty area. I saw some replays that looked like it might not have been contact, other ones that looked like it was contact. 
I thought it was contact. Didn't think it was the greatest contact in the world. But Kelly Hubley's action was a foul that impeded Sam Kerr's ability to play that ball. I, I, I just don't think this is a controversial penalty at all. And to the degree it is controversial, there are more controversial things in the game to talk about. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that's important to understand the impeding uh, of the play. It, you know, Hubley didn't have a chance on the ball. And, and even if there was no contact, Sam Kerr only avoided contact by jumping over her and falling over. It, that, it absolutely is not a dive. She has no other path. And, that's and that is just an unreasonable standard to say that a player has to subject themselves to injury. They can't do anything to try to avoid that situation in order for that to be a penalty. That's yeah. it's an unrealistic standard. And it's an unsafe standard. So I understand people looking at that and not wanting it to be a penalty because well, I don't want to say I understand it. I don't quite understand fandom, to be honest mm-hmm. with you. But I do know it is a reasonable thing for fans to do to want their teams to... Uh, get the best calls possible. So I guess I'm not super surprised, but I don't see the case to say that 92 times out of 100, that's not a penalty. Yeah. Um, let's hit the injury update before we uh, look at the, the game coming up Friday at Houston, because uh, I think we have a lot of um, interesting news coming out of the Thorns. Uh, Rasso, we didn't even mention, Haley Rasso made her debut, came in, uh, I believe it's 72nd or 74th minute in um, against Chicago. Um so she's, from what we understand, is going to see more minutes against Houston Friday. And then we have Franch and Sonnet um, coming back in from, from what we know into the team, uh, likely now on uh, Friday as well. At least that's the projection that yeah. we were left with, right, before the team went on their road trip. Rosso immediately hounding Katie Naughton into a throw, having to kick it out for a throw, was just such an incredible thing to see. That energy seemed like she took all of the pent-up aggression from not being able to play for a couple months and immediately put it into that moment of terror. It'll be interesting to see what, if Emily Sonnet plays, if A.D. French plays, what they can bring to the team. A.D. French definitely has an element of authority back there that is unique to her. You don't even want to say it's like, you don't even want to compare it to Britt Eggerstrom because compared to everybody, Adriana French has that quality. And then Emily Sonnet, like we talked about, the ability to get her athleticism into the team. It'll be very helpful against Houston this week if it happens because Rachel Daly, for them, is a really good athlete, a really hard worker, and is having a really good year. So to be able to have her track Rachel Daly while Emily Mangus continues to have her steadying, organizing, decision-making presence will really be an upgrade for them. Yeah, and what Mark Parsons told me, um, I think, on Monday was that they will are expected to play unless something occurs this week to change that. So... Um, the assumption is they'll play. If they're not in there, there's some sort of setback going on. Um, the other player that hasn't completely been ruled out for this game is Tobin Heath. It sounded a lot less likely that she was going to be in sure there. I'm pretty sure I saw a tweet that said she had a broken ankle. <laughs> I did see that tweet. I don't know who that person was. That wasn't a that wasn't and it was reporting? Wrong. That it was, was okay. not reporting. She does not have a broken ankle. Let's not... Let's not even say that because you're going to scare the listeners. Um, she Twitter's a, sprained... a scary place. <laughs> she has a sprained ankle, but it sounds like she's progressing uh, quicker than expected and, and hadn't yet been ruled out for this game, although it might not be this game she's in. But Mark Parsons did say in the next few games he expects her back. And as far as I know, the timeline that you reported a week ago on Mitch Purse stays in effect yeah. where she's out for two to three weeks so she's not in frame for this game nor what I think she's in frame for the next game on Wednesday when, they, when they're when they done with Houston yeah speaking of Houston 
Let's go ahead and talk about this one a little bit. 5.30 start at BBVA Compass Stadium in Houston, Texas. No Lindsey Horan. Yeah. Yes. I think that's the big, big thing going into this I'm going to have game. to come up with another prediction. <laughs> <laughs> no, obviously that's really big because we were talking about how Andresinha got moved off the ball against Chicago. Lindsey Horan is obviously a forceful presence in the middle. It almost feels like an understatement to call her that. You would think that Celeste Bure comes back into the team. Celeste is the person that came off the bench when they substituted off Andresinha against Chicago. What the rest of the midfield looks like, I'm not sure. Is Andresinha still there? I don't, I'm not actually sure what this team is going to look like. Between that and the people that are coming back in, I don't have a clear idea of yeah. what this team is going to look like. I mean, Mark implied that when in talking this week with Mark about how they adjust to Lindsey Horan's absence, he implied that Andresinha would be in there and then that either Celeste or, or Angela Salem would likely be the one coming in. Um, and that those players, along with Sinclair, just have to take on a bigger role. And it's a it's a much bigger role to kind of make up for what Lindsay Horan offers with her ball winning, with her ability to go into tackles, with her ability to cover ground, with her ability to be a chance creator, but also as someone who can score goals. It's not going to be easy for the Thorns to, to deal with this absence. And I, I don't. Um, I mean, Parsons said, you know, that he just needs players to take on slightly different roles. And as long as the team is confident in the roles that they can survive this absence but this is she hasn't missed a game i believe since 2016 and i'm we haven't seen it and i'm not confident uh how well the thorns are going to be able to do without her we see it in the games where Lindsay horan has to change her game become more forceful in the attacking third we see it when she has to come back and drop for a ball in order to help the thorns maintain possession when they're having trouble holding on to the game there are very few players in this league as valuable as Lindsey Horan. And even 20 minutes ago, we were talking about how this season will probably ebb and flow with what Christine Sinclair and Lindsey Horan can do for the team. To sit here and pretend like Lindsey Horan being absent from Friday is just something the team can just roll with, maybe they can for 90 minutes. But anytime you lose Lindsey Horan, it's a big deal. And maybe they'll rise to the challenge, but... I can't sit here and predict a Lindsay Horan goal every week and pretend <laughs> like this is not a significant, significant loss. Yeah, I, I think the the interesting question is, I mean, the Thorns have certainly dealt with absences throughout the year. And, and the interesting question is they have players coming back in. Russell should see more minutes. It sounds probable that French and Sonnet are going to play. And, and so how, how much does those things help them as compared to losing Horan hurts them? I think that's the big question. I think maybe what your question gets to is the fact that we I'm implying that some people are irreplaceable. The defense is going to be improved. The attack is going to be a little bit better. The identity is going to look a little bit more thornsy. But you can't replace Lindsey Horan no matter what. You can't offset that. If, if you have a better, winger, a better winger come in or you have your defense upgrade, that's great. But Lindsey Horan controls the game. And Christine Sinclair makes sure, along with Lindsey Horan, that the Thorns are never run over in a game. They're always going to be able to push people around. And you lose one of those two, you can't just put somebody in there and expect to recover. You can't even put Tobin Heath in there and expect to be the same team. You can be a capable team. But Heath just it isn't quite the same player as Lindsey Horan. It, I mean, to be fair, Lindsey Horan isn't quite the same player as Tony Heath in another sense. But let's go to one of the listener questions that we have here. Uh, What's going on with Caitlin Ford? 
that seems like a weird time question because don't we know that Caitlin Ford is coming back from a long-term injury? Yeah, I, I think we're getting to the point where that's a fair question. And it's something that we haven't yet uh, really talked to Mark about, but it is something that I, I think we do need to, once they get off this road trip, get a better update. The, the update was she would be back potentially um, in best case scenario in July, maybe even August. And that is still, as far as we know, I, I haven't seen her out here or anything like that yet. So I don't know, know that she's joined the team or anything at this point. Um, but I, I think in the next few weeks, that is something kind of how we finally got the Roy Miller update. It's probably time to start asking about Caitlin Ford. So we should have more information um, in the coming weeks and in, in, or so. I think people can see on her social media, particularly her Instagram, what she's doing, her progress generally. I can't comment on that at all because she's not here with the team. Yeah. And once she is here with the team, I'll start getting some information. You'll start getting some information. And 95% of the time, it'll be the exact same information. <laughs> and then we'll be able to talk about it. But I would generally say that once Mark Parsons starts talking about it, it's probably the time to start asking about Caitlin Ford because until then, there's probably not anything to bring up. I mean, yeah. the, the, only, the only status update is that the timeline they talked about before is still in place. Yeah. So before we hit predictions, I, since, I, as I've said, it, it's my favorite thing in the world, we have to talk about the World Cup before we hit the predictions, um, particularly from the Timbers side. Uh, both Guzman and Polo, um, their teams had their first games. Yeah. Um, didn't go great. Guzman got a start, became the first Timbers player uh, ever to play at a World Cup. Uh, so I think that's big for the club. Um, I wish I had one of those birthday <laughs> things. <Yeah. laughs> Anytime something good happens, we just go to both. They did both lose. Uh, Peru, I, that was a tough loss. 1-0 um, loss um, for Peru to Denmark. And then um, Costa Rica also lost 1-0 to Serbia. Guzman did concede the free kick that led to that goal. A um, little bit unfortunate there for him. I, I think the question now from that side is, are either are we going to see Polo and Guzman back here a, a bit quicker than maybe expected, or are either of those countries going to make it out of the group? It looks bad for them. Yeah. <laughs> because on Thursday, Andy Polo and Peru face the toughest team of their group, France. They kind of need to win the game. If they draw, they still are alive, but they're relying on other teams and tiebreakers at that point. So they're in a position where they kind of need to beat France to control their destiny. And then the next day, Costa Rica's in the exact same situation yeah. against Brazil. So if you had to bet on it, you would say that because of those losses in the first game of group play against teams that they were going to have to battle, they're going to be right there with to get out. Losing three points to those teams in particular puts them in just a terrible, terrible place, I think. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I think that that was a must win uh, pretty much for both teams, or at least a must draw if you want to keep it sort of even. But that was essentially the teams that they were competing with to yeah. try to get out and particularly in Peru's side. I, I, I really thought Peru looked like an exciting team, so that's disappointing to me. Um, it, Costa Rica, obviously, 2014, made that surprise run. It would have been nice to see them, see how they could follow that up. But uh, they're going to have to put together some special performances uh, as underdogs against some of these teams if, if they want a chance out of the group. I absolutely agree. Let's go to the one listener question that we have here from Amus. It's all capitalized. I'm not going to yell it. He asks... Or she asks, they ask, will Polo see the field for Peru? You mentioned that Guzman actually started. I believe he played 58 minutes, and Polo did not play at all. Will he play over these last two games or going forward for Peru? 
I think he'll I think he'll get in in one of these games. I, I don't think he'll start. I don't think he'll see significant minutes. But but he is a player that I, I think Peru has used off the bench um, enough that I, I think he they will use him. They will find the moment to use him in the next two games. Um, we'll see if it goes any further than that. Yeah, it seems like it's kind of a coin flip every game with them, whether yeah. Andy Polo will play. And you flip a coin three times, it might come up heads once. So I would bet that he's, you know, he could play, definitely. If he doesn't play, I'm not going to be super shocked, particularly as it seems like they're still reintegrating Paulo Guerrero into their team. So they had to allocate a sub to him last time. But, again, I'm not going to be super shocked if he doesn't appear in this World Cup. Jamie, we have two games coming up. We've saved the predictions. Let's take them in chronological order with the Thorns in Houston on Friday night. You get to do a prediction. I get to do a side bet. We're both going to be scored on these. I get to do the scoring next week. What's your prediction? I am going to predict a 1-1 draw. What? Uh, though, Haran being out is, is making me feel pretty concerned. Well, a 1-1 draw was the last score there. I'm going to have to give you zero points for that prediction. I just don't think it's that original. <laughs> it might actually be right. There's zero heat behind it, so I'm just going to give you your score now. You can't do that. We will uh, see next week. We <laughs> got to, we got to talk about this. My side bet is based on the energy that we saw from her in her season debut, the likelihood that she's going to get more minutes, the other players in her position that aren't producing goals right now, I'm going to say Haley Rosso in her second appearance of the year scores a goal, mostly because Lizzie Horan is not playing, and I can't make that side bet, but my side bet is going to be Rosso with okay. her first goal of the year. Given, given that it, she hasn't played very much, that would be a pretty, I think, decent, uh, side, decent point side bet if you get it right. Well, thank you. Let's go on to the Sunday game. The Timbers are in Atlanta, the Darlington Reunion Part 1. Uh, it's at their first trip to Atlanta because Atlanta last year was an expansion team. They came out here, but we didn't go out there. First trip to that environment, Mercedes-Benz Thunderdome. <laughs> Your prediction? Yeah, I think I have even less confidence about this game. Um, I am going to predict a 2-0 loss. I, I just I think if the unbeaten streak is going to come to an end, it, this seems like the place that it's going to happen. My side bet is a little bit of a weird one. I'm going to say that Atlanta takes at least twice as many shots as the Timbers. And for some people, they might go, okay, well, like, what is that about? Maybe they have a better question than that, but they might like furrow their brow like that's a weird side bet. But even in games where you see teams kind of dominate, having twice as many shots is a big deal. I don't think Atlanta's necessarily going to dominate this one, but I think the Timbers are going to be very happy to let them take shots from distance and try to hit them on the counter. I think uh, I think it's going to lead to a lopsided shot total. All right. Um, I guess before we go, we have the fantasy update. Uh, in third place, we have we have a new team, Fake Plastic Team, with uh, 1,539 points. Good name. Uh, second place, FC Beard Lord, with 1,547 points. And still in first place, we have Beer City FC with uh, 1,652 points. Where is Chris's team in this? Shouldn't he be telling yeah, us where we he need ranks? Yeah, we need to. I need to get on him on that. He usually ranks himself, and I think he's. He's definitely way down there. <laughs> is, he, is he so into retirement no. he's not updating his Maybe. team Maybe he, he might. He's actually been okay, so we'll see with how far down he is. But I'm just going to assume he's like the last place since he didn't, he didn't send it to me. It must be embarrassing if he hasn't sent it to me. So <laughs> Otherwise, he would be bragging about it. We'll have it. to get an update from Chris to see how, how poorly, I assume, he's doing next week. Um, but that's it. 
That's the podcast. Uh, we're Soccer Made in Portland. I'm Jamie Goldberg. That's Richard Farley. And you can find us every week on Oregon Live, Sumtown Footy, and Timbers.com. And you can also subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. Until next week, take care.